Welcome, everybody. Andrew Holacek here with a truly extraordinarily special guest, um, one of my main teachers, mentors, um, friends, Ken Wilbur, who I think at this point for many people doesn't really need uh, introduction. We, we did present a little bit on our site about who this remarkable individual is. Um, and I'll just say the briefest of comments about him. Um, and then we're just going to launch right in because we have so much that we want to talk about. But, you know, Ken truly is one of the most important philosophers in the world today. Um, he's the most widely translated academic writer in America with 25 books translated into some 30 languages. He's incredibly active still as a writer, philosopher, teacher, and all his major publications are still in print. And so, um, you know, the, the accolades, the superlatives when it comes to Ken Wilber go on endlessly, but uh, he's been referred to as the Einstein of consciousness studies, um, a national treasure. And there's no doubt in my life the influence that this um, remarkable individual has had on my life. And Ken, I don't know if you know, but I first met you um, when you moved to Boulder some, I don't know, 25, 30 years ago, um, and there was a reception at Naropa Institute with, uh, I think we're welcoming you onto the board of trustees with the Etreo was with you. And it was just a totally delightful opportunity to meet um, one of my main heroes. And so, you know, we've bumped into each other many times in our time in Boulder. I've actually sat next to you during empowerments with His Holiness Penner Repiche. Um, and so, you know, you've been circumambulating my life, right? And circumambulating your work. For decades, ever since Spectrum of Consciousness was published, I've read everything you've put into print, and you still remain one of my um, heroes. And so thank you so much, dear friend, for taking the time to chat with us a little bit today. Well, it's a pleasure, my friend. Um, I think you are uh, the tops. <laughs> You're one of my uh, absolute favorite writers as well. And just as a person, I uh, happen to love you, so I think it's great. Yeah, the feeling is very mutual, really. It just goes beyond the limitations of this incarnation, for sure. And so what I want to do here, Ken, with your permission, if you can indulge me for just a second, I want to kind of set the stage for what I hope to chat with you about today um, and to, to, I think, convey to our listeners and also to you how fortuitous it is to actually have you as our inaugural speaker for this venture, because... The work that we're attempting to do with what we are coining Night Club, and I'll um, unpack that in a little bit, is absolutely, completely resonant with the spirit of integral theory, which I'll ask you to talk about in just a second. But it's so cool for me because as I was flipping through some of your books, and again, I have them all, I, I was just like pulling up books and saying, okay, what does Ken have to say about dreams and, and subtle body? And it's amazing how often you come to this topic. And I, I came across... This um, introductory paragraph in, in uh, Integral Spirituality, that when I read it, it was like, OMG, this is a total mission statement for what we're trying to accomplish. So let me read this to our audience, because it really does um, beautifully summarize the charter of what we're trying to accomplish here. So in, in your words here, Ken, if I might. Great wisdom traditions, such as Christian mysticism, Vedanta, Hinduism, Vajrayana Buddhism, and Jewish Kabbalah maintain that the three natural states of consciousness, waking, dreaming, and deep formless sleep, actually contain a treasure trove of spiritual wisdom and spiritual awakening, if we know how to use them correctly. 
We usually think of the dream state as less real, but what if you could enter it while awake? And the same with deep sleep. Might you learn something extraordinary in these awakened states? How do you know for sure without trying it? In a special sense, the three great natural states of waking, dreaming, and deep sleep might contain an entire spectrum of spiritual enlightenment and growth. And that is just such a point on um, gem of a statement for what we're trying to do here. And I wanted to also share with you, Ken, I, I, I read recently a book, quite a lovely book, called Why We Sleep by a neuroscientist, Matthew Walker, or, uh, Matthew Walker out of UC Berkeley. He goes so far as to say, and this is a quote from him, this is a hardcore scientist. He goes so far as to say, quote, it is possible that looser dreamers represent the next iteration in Homo sapiens evolution, end quote. And as you well know, you know, both in Vajrayana Buddhism and Advaita Vedanta, as you suggest in your paragraph that I just read here, Ken, if we are lucid to it, um, we are more in contact with reality in um, the dream state, and in particular, lucid, dreamless sleep, than we are in waking consciousness. And as you so often refer to this seminal quotation from one of our mutual heroes, Ramana Maharshi, when he says, that which does not exist in deep, dreamless sleep is not real. And so what we're doing here, Ken, with our work is it's we're, we're really using almost the excuse of sleep and dream to, in fact, explore the nature of mind and reality and to realize, as you point out here, that if it's engaged properly, the treasure trove, these vast natural resources that lie beneath us, within us, um, provide an opportunity for, for more spiritual development. You know, B. Allen Wallace and others, as you know, say that the coarse waking state actually has the least potential for spiritual transformation than these three states of consciousness. And so what we're trying to do is explore these domains as a way to help us wake up. And the last kind of preparatory comment I want, and then I totally want to launch into this and start to pick your amazing mind, is what I want to explore with you, Ken, is really in the spirit of both the Buddha in the East and Socrates in the West, where um, questions are more important than answers. It's really more important to question our answers um, and really, the, the kind of the archetype for me in the Western world is Mark, little Mark Twain, when he said, "No, it's not what you don't know that gets you in trouble; it's what you do know that just ain't so." And so, you know, the idea that we're awake just ain't so. The 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 idea that we're fully grown up just ain't so. And and so, these are the topics I want to explore with you using the medium of sleep and dream. And under the guise of, of a, a format that I've always approached with my own spiritual teachers, you know, I've had the opportunity to sit at the Holiness Panorepiche or Karmapa. You know, I, I run my life with, with these masters where it's like, I want to ask the questions to these great beings, the answer of which will change my life. And, you know, maybe we can do that in the next um, hour or so that we have with each other. But I thought we would start, unless you have any, like, introductory overall um, general comments from your side, my first pitch to you would be, you know, you are the forefather, the father of integral theory, integral meta theory. And many people are familiar with it, but, you know, many people still are not. So what would be, Ken, your elevator pitch in terms of 
describing the extraordinary explanatory power and wealth of this mandala, this map that you've created, um, really in the body of your entire life. So give me the work of, you know, the summation of your entire life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How, how would you define animal theory? Um, well, I started out, um, I, would, I had a, a terrific education. My dad was in the Air Force. We moved around quite a bit. Um, and I ended up going to a lot of different schools. But I really had a terrific um, education. It was largely oriented towards essentially scientific types of endeavors. So I was one of those bright kids that had, you know, chemistry labs in the basement when I was seven years old and I was you know, killing cat accidentally and experimenting on it and blowing stuff up uh, accidentally and all that kind of stuff. And I, I had always sort of been told and thought that I would end up going to Duke University um, simply because my mom's family was from the South and that I would be a doctor. And I ended up doing exactly that, ended up at, at Duke in the medical program. And literally the first day I was there, and I was uh, up to that point sort of, you know, all-American golden boy. I mean, I was valedictorian. I was student body president twice. Uh, I was even captain of the football team at one point. I mean, it was really kind of weird. So I had a very happy upbringing. I was, everything was wonderful. And I got into medical school, and literally the first day I was there, I sat down, and you always heard that sort of classic cliche about waiting for the next shoe to drop. Right. And I'd taken off one shoe. And before I'd taken off the other shoe, I knew I didn't want to be there. And it was hard to explain what was happening, but it just sort of dawned on me, kind of a, a blinding sort of Ken show, that all of the things that I had learned in science really hadn't addressed any of those idiotic, silly questions about why am I here? What does it mean? Who am I? I it was just shocking to me that I would learn as much as I had learned and didn't have any sense of any sort of answer to those kinds of questions and i i literally sort of dropped out of official education at that point i kept going to school i eventually switched over um to doing graduate studies in biochemistry um got graduate degree in, in that field but what i was really spending my time doing was a massive massive search east and west north and south and especially pre-modern as well as modern and post-modern, just looking at what are not only fundamental sort of answers, but what are the fundamental questions? Exactly. And what's actually available? What, what, what can we actually look at? And I, was, I particularly started by looking at schools that would have something in the very broadest sense could be called something like psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. um, that in some sense, there's something wrong with your present state, and you want to do whatever you can to make it better. Now, that could mean that you actually have a kind of neurotic, emotional problem, but it also opened very quickly onto these areas that claim that our normal waking state of consciousness is suboptimal, that there really are things called enlightenment or awakening 
or metamorphosis or satori or moksha, prana, is the great liberation. And what the hell was that all about? And I had started this massive sort of program of studying in, in both um, Eastern and Western general answers to those kinds of questions like, who am I really? What's the best that I can be? Is there some different type of state of awareness or consciousness that's actually more real, that's, that's more in life, more realized than, than the one I'm in now? And I, as I, and I was looking at everything from psychoanalysis to Zen Buddhism, sort of everything in between. And I was actually not just studying whenever I would hit upon sort of one of the major approaches, like a psychoanalytic approach with the hundreds of different offshoots that it had had. I actually went out and found a psychotherapist that, that had a psychoanalytic orientation. I actually started doing that. Um, I, when I started Zen, and my first introduction to Zen was D.T. Suzuki's Essays in Zen Buddhism. These large three volumes um, absolutely were stunning to me. And the, I mean, I've been brought up, I was a standard Protestant Sunday school going kid. Um, and I knew you were supposed to believe all those things, literally. You know, Moses really did part the Red Sea and Lot's wife really was turned into a pillar of salt all of that and of course i didn't believe it by the time i started developing any sort of rational um approach and certainly not with my sort of overall scientific um background but i had no idea that there was even something like a sator like mm -hmm. an awakening like an enlightenment and my first response to, to reading essays in zen buddhism was i was infuriated i was i was absolutely enraged and i'm not the type of person gets angry that often but what was so made me so mad was i was something you know i was 17 or so years old and my response was i why did nobody tell me this before how did i end up being raised in an entire culture that, you know, I, I've been here two decades and nobody even told me about this. I was absolutely enraged. And I finally ended up calming down and then went out, found a Zen teacher and started actually practicing. So I was doing all these things. And one of the things that I sort of couldn't help but notice, being a fairly bright boy, is that as you looked at all these sort of different approaches, Spanning throughout the millennia and, and east, west, west, north, south, is that in terms of actual kinds of practices or things you could actually do to take whatever your state of consciousness was and make it better, that they fell into about six or seven um, general sort of family uh, 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 approaches that had certain family resemblance. Mm -hmm. uh, to each other. So you could start to find um, types of approaches that really were working on something like a psychoanalytic or psychotherapeutic approach where you still define that you have a separate individual ego, but parts of that can get split off or repressed or, or dissociated. 
And so you can create shadow material. And what you have to do is, is, is take your narrowed, inaccurate self-image and combine it with the shadow material you've been repressing to make this whole more accurate um, ego. So it was, the point was to get a stronger ego, and ego strength was the core of those kinds of approaches. And then there were approaches, particularly the, the deeply mystical approaches, that said, no, wait, you, you don't want to make your ego stronger. You want to get rid of your ego. And it said, it's sort of not only different, but dramatically different than the more psychoanalytic approaches. And it turned out that there were indeed about six or seven of those kinds of family resemblances. And immediately, in a sense, because I was practicing a good number of those, and I was seeing the actual benefit that you would get from these different approaches, the question became very quickly, not just which one of these is right versus all the others that must be wrong, but just a simple assumption, they're all right. There, all of them were true but partial. So the yeah. really burning question is not which one of these is right. The really burning question is how can they all fit together? Exactly. Now, they're already arising in the universe. They're already arising together. They're already here. So the universe must think they're okay. <laughs> another. So, so how, the universe hangs together. Why don't our theories hang mm-hmm together and so that became sort of the guiding in a sense kind of meta theory of 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 my own life the big question um was how can these all possibly fit together they've all arisen they're all here they're all showing up how is that possible because not only do they you know not always agree with each other sometimes they flat out disagree like, what are you supposed to do? Make your ego stronger or get rid of that little bastard? <laughs> I mean, that's a serious question. And it's not easy to get those together. So that became kind of a compelling point for me. And one of the first sort of Satori-like realizations in this field came when it started to dawn on me that as far as this thing called consciousness that I um, – had in some sense just kind of taken for granted that I was conscious. But most of these different approaches, six or seven families of approaches, were actually attempting to adjust this thing called consciousness. They were trying to make it healthier or more functional or they were trying to make it bigger or more inclusive or something. But none of them just took consciousness as a given. Yeah, the common, common denominator, exactly. Right. Right. So one of the first things that dawned on me was, okay, there actually wasn't just a single thing called consciousness. Whatever else was going on is there was an entire spectrum of consciousness. It really was this extraordinary sort of rainbow affair with a, a, a good number of different levels or waves or dimensions of existence. And you could get in touch with any one of these. But it took a general, generally some sort of practice. You actually had to do things in order to engage these other dimensions of awareness if you weren't already aware of them. Now. Mm-hmm. And so 
that was a kind of a fairly big breakthrough for me because I noticed that the six or seven family of what you could do to make things better, um, that they really did tend to address six or so major different bands in the rainbow, six or seven major colors of, of consciousness. And there really was this thing called an egoic um, consciousness, even though some of the other approaches would eventually say, yes, it's there, but it, it's not ultimately real. It's actually in itself, it's a little bit more illusory. And there are things you can do to awaken deeper, realer, more inclusive states of consciousness. And so that was fun, which I had already sort of divided these different approaches into around these six or seven different sort of families of approaches. And then when I noticed that there were roughly six or seven sort of major levels of consciousness, types mm -hmm. of consciousness, dimensions of consciousness, those actually fit together quite well. That every major level of consciousness or dimension of consciousness had approaches that were designed to make that level function better, or even to bring that level into, into being if it wasn't already part of your awareness. And that was a big breakthrough for me. So I actually wrote that up. It was my first book. I was 23 years old. It was called, appropriately enough, The Spectrum of, of Consciousness. And what that did was set me in a direction that was basically, well, it was sort of as all-inclusive as inclusive can get. Mm -hmm. I mean, there just really was a, a, sort of a, um, the kind of motto of what I was doing is I would just sort of keep in mind the idea that everybody is right. And it doesn't mean that some people aren't more right than others, but there are. But everybody essentially, well, if we get in a negative way, the human brain is not capable of producing 100% error. All the time. <laughs> yeah, I see nobody's smart enough to be wrong all the time. <laughs> so that means that pretty much every approach we have to things like what's real, what's ultimate reality, what's consciousness, who am I, that there are um, different approaches, but everybody has some little bit of truth. And again, the real question is how do all of these partial truths together? Not just which one is right versus all the others which are wrong. And that was just a fundamental shift. And later uh, I came to see that actually did represent the emergence of a certain type of cognitive capacity. And, and that, that really is uh, an important part of what human beings do is from the time they're born and then, you know, not even to think about what might have happened before that in any sort of you know, rebirth or, or transmigrating or reincarnating sense. But certainly from, from the time uh, human beings are born, I mean, you do have things such as being uh, a heart surgeon or being a concert pianist or just the best waiter at the local restaurant. But one thing is sure, all, all of those tasks are something that a three-month-old child cannot do 
And between not being able to do any of that and being able to do that, you know, up to including sort of Nobel level possibilities, there's a whole developmental unfolding that things really do in a broad sense evolve. There really is a certain developmental unfolding capacities and their awareness and their consciousness, states of consciousness, the stages of consciousness that they go through. And so that began this um, quest, if you will, of finding just a framework that essentially could make room for all of these different types of ideas that human beings have come up with. And that sounds insane, of course, because, I mean, well, first of all, Nobody's nearly smart enough to, to take in all of the information that's available. I mean, that's just beyond anybody's capacity. So certainly we're talking about things like, um, you know, a view from 50,000 feet and over generalizations, ways that we can make certain broad conclusions and put those things together. So even it takes something to jump to kind of a, um, a goofy, but um, an example just to get the point across. So we're saying something like, let's say you take a series of beliefs in like Santa Claus mm-hmm. or the Tooth Fairy or some obviously even uh, Apollo or Zeus or Aphrodite. Um, in some sense, us rational folks know that those are really real. So we wouldn't just automatically say yes, the, the Tooth Fairy's true because you know the human mind can't produce 100 percent error so there has to be some sort of truth in there. and that just on the face of it looks city audit but if you actually sit down and study the development of human cognitive capacity then what you see and there turns out to be an enormous amount of data on this most of which most people don't know anything about but if we look at stages of human cognitive development, just to give one example, I'm not saying everything is right about this example, but just as an example, mm-hmm. Gene Depser is a brilliant pioneer in the evolution or development of worldviews that human beings have created. And to tweak his terms just a bit, human beings have gone from archaic stage to magic stage to mythic stage to rational state, to pluralistic, relativistic, to integral stages of cognitive development. And those worldviews reflect those. And so there was a long time, for example, that human beings really didn't have a widespread access to what we would call formally rational modes of thinking, what Piaget would call formal operational cognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, 100,000 years ago, uh, 200,000 years ago, human beings were at what Gibson would call a magic stage of development. Then as that continued to unfold, then they moved into what Gibson would term mythic stages of development. Now, it turns out that a mythic stage of development, and by the way, these stages have also been investigated in, well, we have perhaps upwards of a dozen multiple intelligences. And the stages of development in every one of those multiple intelligences, we have empirical studies on every one of those. And there's an enormous general uh, uh, amount of agreement on those stages. 
And so if we look at James Fowler, for example, he studied um, what people's sort of religious beliefs were like. And he found also that those tended to go through a series of around six or seven major stages of um, development. One of the stages Fowler actually called mythic literal. Now, that's very similar, of course, to Gebser's mythic stage. And what you find at those stages is when somebody in Genesis wrote, Moses parted the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. They didn't have a a big metaphoric, big symbolic, transcendental meaning for that. What they meant was Moses parted the Red Sea. That was literally felt to be true. Mm -hmm. And that's what they wrote. In terms of that's how their recollection would picture what had happened during the exodus from uh, from Egypt. So that's exactly the kind of state that thinks those kinds of mythic beings are actually real. And as far as it goes at that state of development, that was a pretty big um, uh, improvement in terms of how human beings were actually conceived the world. But it does just start to show that, okay, wait, there really is this whole different kind of spectrum of, of developmental capacities and what we call consciousness really does undergo a type of evolution or unfolding, a type of developmental unfolding. Well, now you get to things like, okay, well, what is this thing called something like enlightenment or something like awakening? Is just in terms of inclusiveness, that seems to be as as sort of inclusive a direct experience as human beings can have. I mean, what it's basically saying is at at, at the least, your identity shifts to being. Thanks for listening. You can listen to the full interview by joining Nightclub, Lucid Dreaming and Dream Yoga Community. Just $1 for your first 30 days. Try it out. Click the website link in our profile to get started.